Well, it seemed appropriate after Easter to spend some time thinking about what... Uh, you go ahead and turn the lights on. Thanks. There we are. Uh, we'll shed some light on things today. How about that? So, uh, so it seemed appropriate after Easter to spend a little time digging into what it looked like for the disciples simply to be around Jesus. Because we, we celebrate the big, miraculous events of Jesus' ministry, some of the big healings. We, we celebrate, of course, the resurrection, and we should. But there were an awful lot of days in which Jesus was spending the day with his disciples, and they were experiencing everyday Jesus. We've talked about paying taxes. We've talked about spending time resting. We've talked about all sorts of different everyday things they were doing. Here's another one, though, and it's one that's it's challenging, but I think it's a great place to wrap up on, and a great place, as we'll see as we go along tonight, to wrap up on, on Pentecost Sunday, the, the Sunday in which we, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because as we think about that, after Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends his Spirit to, to dwell amongst his followers, what's he doing? He's setting us up to be the people of God, going into the world, doing ministry, when we don't have that joy the disciples had early on of, of hanging around the everyday Jesus. But what did he do during his ministry, during those everyday days, that then he calls us to do? What did he do during those days with those particular fallen, broken, average, everyday disciples well, part of what he did over and over again, and we get little hints of this. We saw that a few weeks ago talking about them arguing over who was the greatest. And, and as they did that, you know there's some, some trampled on egos there and, and wounds. You know, well, how do you think that you're the greatest, Peter? You know, I'm, one day in the Gospels, he's going to say, I'm the beloved disciple. Can you just see John saying that and them going back and forth? They're, they were going to hurt each other. They, they were doing ministry together, they were traveling together. They were living together. They were going to hurt each other. And as we talk about Jesus doing the big, grand, ultimately amazing, wonderful, here we are, it's why we're here 2,000 years later, sort of restoration of all things that someday will be brought to fruition when he returns again. We don't want to lose sight of the everyday sorts of restoration Jesus was doing as he, he ministered with these friends. Places where they failed him, places where they failed just each other. And what was Jesus doing? Well, we see an incredible demonstration of what genuine biblical restoration looks like in the very last scene of the Gospel of John, one of the last moments Jesus spends with his disciples. As we look at how Jesus provides healing in that moment, I believe we start to understand a little bit better what's it look like to be restored restorers ourselves? What does it look like to be those who bring healing? Because one of the challenges of being the church is we're going to hurt each other. If you've been in the church long enough, you've been hurt by the church. It's going to happen. And you've been hurt by the people in the church. And maybe you come here to Little Hills and you think, well, this is different. And I pray that it is different. And I hope, at the very least, it's better than some of those experiences. 
but if in God's will, and I believe it's his will, we are here for the long haul and we do ministry together for the long haul and, and we're together as a church family for the long haul, here's the ugly truth. We're going to hurt each other. The question is, what are we going to do when we hurt each other? It's not something we really want to think about, is it? Sort of like we don't like thinking about breaking things. A few weeks ago, I was making pizza. If you've been here long enough, you know I love making homemade pizza. And I, I had this rolling pin that I'd gotten a number of years ago now, I think it was, at Aldi. It was a really neat-looking decorative rolling pin, and I hadn't used it. And I thought, I'm going to use this rolling pin. And I was going a little fast on, on making my pizza, and I'm rolling it. And I, I didn't want to... The dough gets kind of hard. I didn't want to break off the handles right away, something like that. So I decided I was just kind of rolling with my hands, and I'm, I'm rolling this rolling pin around, getting the pizza just right. It's doing a great job. I mean, this is, this is a great rolling pin. It's just rolling along, right? Everything's going smoothly. Until I actually went a little close to the edge of the, the counter, and I'm just rolling with the top of it using my hands, and it goes right up, hits the floor, and breaks into pieces. Very first outing. Ah. So, it's not going to be rolling pizza any longer. It, it only got one, it's made in voyage like the Titanic. It was the Titanic of, 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 of rollers because it is not going to do that anymore. Thankfully, it was also a decorative roller. It's really pretty. So, I've been meaning to glue it back together for, I don't know, eight weeks now, something like that. Sitting there on the counter, pieces all there, just broken. So, I ordered some super glue. I'm going to glue this back together. And I get the little package of super glue in the mail. It's in a little envelope, and I, I set it down. And I lose my super glue. So now I'm missing super glue, and I have a broken rolling pin. I, I'm really going, uh, this is really going great, right? So I ordered another thing of super glue because I thought, I'll, whenever I find it, I'll be able to use it. Yeah, I, I lost that one too. So uh, I, I still have a broken rolling pin. And, he, and here's the problem yes, I want that rolling pin restored, but I need more. I need something to hold it together. I need that glue, and I need, so I need the desire to pull it together. I need the, the tool to pull it together, and I, I need to, that all to come together at once. And when we think about restoration in the church and what it looks like, there's a lot of pieces that need to come together, too, as we break and fracture each other. Sometimes we're rolling along, we're doing ministry together, we're just going along on the counter, and we're, we're doing it together as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're rolling each other along, and we just push a little too hard on someone, and, and he or she's shattered on the floor, and we say, well, I, I want to restore you, and we order the super glue, and we lose it, or we forget to use the super glue. And we leave each other broken. Here's the thing that we know from Scripture. We need restoration. We are going to need restoration in a lot of ways. And, and the big picture way is we need restoration from sin. We need God to restore us, to pull us back together. But we don't want to lose sight of the everyday sorts of restoration we're going to need to do with each other as well. And, and there's a lot of really bad teaching in the church on how we do this. So let's dive in, see what Jesus does, ask that God would help us to understand what Jesus is doing, and then maybe we can help pick up each other's pieces a little bit better. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your son that you sent into this world to, to take on our brokenness. That as our Savior dwelt here on earth and spent those three years in ministry with 
with his disciples that he was constantly pulling them back together, restoring them. Now you have sent your spirit that far better than superglue, we have the very spirit of the living God who dwells in us. Lord, as we hold on to the promise of that, would you help us to, to see those places where we're feeling broken, where we're hurt, where we're coming apart, and those places where we've rolled someone else off the counter. Would you help us to be those who are not only restored by you, but are constantly agents of restoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the first thing that we need to, to catch on to. And this is, I, I mentioned, let's just start out at the front by saying what bad church teaching on restoring each other, on seeking forgiveness, on receiving forgiveness, where it often goes wrong right out of the gate. When we're talking about restoring each other, when we're talking about fixing those broken places, we need to understand it requires mutual effort. It, it's not something that can just be commanded, and, and if someone doesn't want it, you can still bring it about. And I've seen so many people here over the years where one person wants restoration, wants to, to exchange forgiveness, and the other person simply doesn't. And the church tries to force it. It causes even greater damage, and it often damages the very person who got pushed off the counter and is sh shattered on the ground to begin with. And that isn't what we're talking about tonight. And we see that as we turn to John chapter 21, verse 4. Speaking of breaking, this is a different kind of breaking, daybreak. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net out on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, he put on his outer garment, he was, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Classic Peter here, isn't it? So just to understand what's going on here, they're out at sea, and they see this, this figure out on the shore calling out to them. And what does Jesus do? He repeats a miracle they saw at the very beginning of, of his ministry, the, when he first called them. He tells them to cast out. They cast out on the other side, and they get more fish than they can haul. And these big, rugged fishermen, they can't haul in all the fish they are dangling off the side of the boat now. And so John puts two and two together and says, you know that guy standing out there on the shore? I, I, think, I don't think he's just some, you know, professional angler that's giving us advice on fishing. That's Jesus. And he says that to Peter, and, and, and Peter sees exactly where John's going. He says, yeah, you're right, that is Jesus. And what does Peter do? It says he put on his outer garment. So they, they'd wear these robes, and it wouldn't be easy to manipulate as they're fishing with them on, so they take them off, they strip them off, and Peter throws it on himself and just dives into the water because he wants to be with Jesus. He's not even going to wait for the boat to come in. He, he doesn't care if he's going to get all wet. He doesn't care about the fish that they just caught. He just wants to be with Jesus. We need to remember that this is happening in the context of the resurrection. Jesus has been resurrected. He has appeared to the disciples twice, at least, that we see in the Gospel of John. We have some different incidents in the other Gospels, but in the stories of the Gospel of John, he's appeared twice in the upper room to them. 
if you're thinking of the, the, the story of doubting Thomas, one of those, one that we really hang on to from after the resurrection, that's already happened. So Jesus has come. He's, he's shown that he's alive to the disciples. He's helped Thomas come along uh, as he's struggling with believing the idea that Jesus is alive. And now the disciples have to figure out, well, well what's next? And I'd imagine that was especially weighing on Peter because we have to remember what happened before the resurrection with Peter. What does Peter do prior to the resurrection, prior to the crucifixion? What does Peter do? He denies him. He denies Jesus. And he denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Peter hasn't forgotten we know that Peter, for Peter, like us, there are going to be some sins that you do that, that you don't even realize you've hurt somebody, that you don't even realize you've done anything wrong, that you don't, you're not even thinking about it a few weeks later. That's not this. Peter knew very clearly what he'd done. Jesus had told him he was going to do it, and Peter did it. And we're told at the time that Peter goes off and weeps bitterly because Peter knows exactly what he's done. And I'd imagine even when Jesus has appeared in the upper room, we're, we're, we're not told what's going on in Peter's mind, but I bet Peter's thinking, I, I, I know it's coming. She's going to say, see, I told you so. And Peter, you know, you were useful to me for these three years, but I want you out. I, I would imagine that's exactly what Peter's expecting. All that Peter can want, think about is how he wants it to be right again. He thinks about all those times that they were there sitting around the, the campfire at night. They'd been fishing for the day, and Jesus is telling them about the kingdom. He thinks about how Jesus sent them out and entrusted him, all of them, including him, Peter, to, to go and do ministry around the countryside. Peter thinks about when they went up on the mountain and they saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah, and it's all over now. As they're in this moment... I think Peter probably has his job application in for several big fishing companies. He's thinking, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to go back to what I did before because I, I'm done. I'm over with. I'm just going to, to wait. I'm going to enjoy Jesus when he is around, and I'm going to recognize that eventually the chewing out is going to come and it's going to be over. I think that's where Peter is right now. But he sees Jesus, and he's just overwhelmed. He just wants to be with Jesus again. He wants to, to be like it was again. And so what does he do? He dives out of the boat. He goes charging to Jesus. This is one of those times that Peter's spontaneity is really, really good. Peter is doing exactly what we should do every time that we're in a broken place with Jesus. We should just go charging towards him. And that's what Peter does here. So, like I said, there are several pieces that need to come together for restoration. And the first one is the person who's done something wrong needs to actually want restoration. And what we see here with, with Peter, Peter doesn't want a broken relationship with Jesus. We see how eager he is to have this opportunity with Jesus. Peter isn't thinking, you know, I denied him, and now, oh, I'm free from this ministry, from all this trouble, all these people that hated us. That's not how Peter's thinking. Peter just wants to be with Jesus again. What does Jesus want? Well, he wants to be with his disciples again, too. And that's what we see as we go on to verse 12. 
says, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So it seems like maybe things are a slight bit different. They, it, there's that comment, they don't dare ask who he is. And we've seen, if we look at the different stories that happen after Easter, sometimes people recognize Jesus, sometimes they don't. We're not told exactly how that works, but but they do know that this is Jesus, and they're happy to be there, sitting there, having breakfast with him. Can you imagine coming to shore? You've been working all, you, you work the night shift, you get, you get off work, and you come into shore, and there's breakfast waiting for you, and who made breakfast for you but Jesus? That's what they're experiencing here. Jesus is sitting there, tending a fire. He says, well, let's throw some more fish on. I know you're all really hungry. But here, I've already cooked some. Have some fish. And now, I, I'm not really big into the idea of fish for breakfast, but, you know, that, that's, that's what they often ate. They are fishermen, after all. That, that was their food, so they're, they're eating their fish. And, and who cares if it's fish? Who cares whatever it is? They're with Jesus for breakfast. Breakfast at Jesus's. Boy, that would be a good movie, huh? Maybe they should do that someday. Anyway, uh, so here they are together with Jesus. And, and let's let's... Think about something else. Now, we've been talking about Peter so far, and that's going to get more important in a moment, but all the disciples have failed Jesus. What do they do the night that he was betrayed? When the, the soldiers come in and they're going to arrest Jesus, what do they do? They go running. All that bravado, all that. Well, Jesus, who, who amongst us is the greatest when your kingdom is fully realized? You know, we're all so great, but I know I'm really the greatest. All that. Oh, there's a soldier. I better run. Oh, they have Jesus? Oh, well, you know, every man for himself. That's, that's what they had all done. All of them have failed Jesus at this point. What does Jesus do to initiate the process of restoration? He's going to send them back out. There's going to be more ministry. We already know where the story goes. Spoiler alert, these disciples that failed Jesus are going to be the ones that establish the church. They're going to be the ones who go and do his work. These fallen, failed, washed up evangelists that they can't even take a little bit of trouble before they start to, to just panic and run for their own lives. They're going to be the ones who establish the church, the, the visible embassy of the kingdom of God, the, the, the workers that are going to pass on the work from generation to generation to declare God's kingdom until he returns. What does Jesus do to say, I love you still. I want to be in fellowship with you still. I want to hold on to that friendship that we've formed over these past three years. It's not gone just because you abandoned me in my hour of need. What does he do? He cooks some breakfast. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes we, we underestimate when we're feeling broken especially when we've been deeply hurt by someone. We, we come to that place where we say, okay, I know I'm supposed to forgive, and I'm going to try to forgive, and eventually I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to forgive, but I don't want to have fellowship with that person any longer. Now, let's set aside for a moment 
abusive situations and so on. I'm going to address that again in a moment, but let's just set aside that. We're n- there are extreme situations. We're not talking about those right now. We're talking about when people just aren't there for us the way we wish they were, when they've said some unkind things, when they've even hurt us deeply. It's not that they haven't hurt us deeply, but there's not a malicious intent. What do we do? We still pull back, or a lot of us do. I do. Well, if you feel that way, if you're that way, maybe I'm just going to pull back. That's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He cooks them breakfast. He says, oh, you guys, you guys that failed me and, and can't even stand with me for a moment when the, when the pressure get, is turned on, what do I want to do? I want to have breakfast with you. I want to actually do the work of cooking for you. I, I mean, Jesus could be spending the whole morning berating these disciples for their failures. But he doesn't do that. He, he cooks them breakfast. And here's what Jesus is showing us here. Now, he, he's God, so he can use his spirit, and he could have done all kinds of different miraculous ways of restoring a broken relationship, but he's going to do a very human thing here because Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and here he's modeling what it looks like when we need to restore relationships too because he's going to actually just spend time with them. He's going to be with them again. He's going to provide the opportunity to start healing again. We can't call that in from a distance. Metaphorically, I'm not saying that. Some, sometimes a phone call is actually a really good thing to do. It's a great way to reach out. It's not that, but metaphorically, we actually have to engage with the people both that have hurt us and who have been hurt by us. And, and Jesus does that here. I, I was reading a story the other day about a couple, and they had come from a little town, and maybe it's because I, I've been in the city all my life that I, I don't fully get this, but some people put a lot of stock in having a, a, a place they know they can be buried someday, that they know that there's a plot there waiting for them. And, and me, I'm thinking, I'm not going to be here when that plot becomes relevant. I, you know, I mean, I'm going to be with Jesus. That's where I'm going to be. I, but some people, it means a great deal to them. And so this couple, they were such a couple. You know, a lot of people will travel even long distances on Memorial Day weekend and go decorate graves. That's a very common thing on this sort of weekend, this holiday. And, and so this couple goes and travels back to their hometown because they want to have a plot in the family cemetery. And so they buy the plot. And this also seems, I don't always understand this. I know some people really want to make sure they have the tombstone just right that's exactly the way they want it. And so they go ahead and buy that ahead of time too. This couple did that. So they had the plot. They have the tombstone. You know, you put the birth dates on. You don't put the death dates on because you, unless you're a prophet, you don't know what that's going to be yet. And so they, they put that there. Then they go back along their way. Well, it, it must have been a few weeks later, someone who's a, a longtime family friend, but kind of not really in deep relationship with them anymore, not talking to them all the time, goes to the cemetery and, and sees the tombstone. Doesn't notice that there aren't any death dates, but sees these two people with their names on a tombstone and, and thought, I don't know how I missed that they died, but I need to do something. You know, th- this, is, this is bad. I need to do something. So this person went, I imagine them rushing to the florist, and they go and they say, you know, Mark and Sally, they both died. I didn't even know it. I need to get some really good flowers for them. And so 
the, the person ordered flowers and had them delivered and placed on the gravestone of this couple. And imagine it's sincere. They're, this person's weeping probably over these people that they, they knew enough to want to buy flowers for the gravestone and had no idea they'd even died. But they hadn't. They didn't have that ongoing fellowship, and so there was something broken there. And there was something genuinely broken, but not what they thought. It wasn't that they'd missed out on the person's death or the people's death. They'd missed out on having enough of a relationship with them to know they hadn't died at all. You have to have actual fellowship for relationships to be healthy. And so what do we find that Jesus is doing? He's actually having breakfast with the disciples. He's modeling what they need to do afterwards because if all the disciples go their own way and they never have any fellowship with each other, what's going to happen? They're going to be trying to send flowers in for each other's tragic events and joyful events and not even knowing what's really going on in their lives. They're not going to really be able to support each other. As sweet in some sense as those flowers are, it's not really a support to the family because there's no connection there. What's Jesus going to set right before he goes back to, to his heavenly Father, before he ascends into heaven? He's going to model what they need to keep doing, keep building fellowship, keep being in each other's lives because that's the only way you're going to actually keep things healed and heal things when they break. Sometimes we just need to know that someone still cares. And sometimes we need to be the ones saying, I still care. And too often we get to that point where we say, well, I'm going to wait, and the other person is going to say, I care, and then I'll go ahead and say, I care. And Jesus could have waited until the disciples figured out some way. They start praying desperately to the Heavenly Father, please let Jesus know that we still care, that we didn't mean to do these things. What does he do? He sets up the opportunity for them to come to him. He doesn't wait. He restores Imagine if Peter's out in the boat there and he sees that figure in the, and yeah, it kind of seems like what Jesus did years ago when he told them to cast the net out on the boat and John thinks it's Jesus out there, but eh, you know, it can't be Jesus. Even if it was, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. I'm just going to stay in the boat. I'll fish some more. I don't feel like coming in. Imagine if Peter had done that. Imagine if Jesus hadn't, spent the time to actually restore his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said, you know, you cooked your own goose there. I'm not going to cook any fish for you. You couldn't even stay with me before I was put to the cross. I'm not going to cook you breakfast. I'm not even going to visit with you. If you want to figure it out someday and think about the things I taught you when I was here on earth, and you want to put those together and, and do some ministry, great. If not, well, you know, you had your chance. Imagine if Jesus had done that. Unlike us, he actually would have been perfectly in his rights to do that because unlike us, he hadn't sinned at all. He hadn't done anything wrong. But he doesn't do that. He reaches out and he starts to rebuild what is broken. And as he does that, he's setting up his disciples to be able to do the ministry that they're called to do. Again, just hold on if you're saying, but you don't know how bad what happened to me is. I want to address some of those, but hang on for a moment here. What we first need to ask is, what has been done to me or what have I done? 
And is there that desire, that mutual desire to actually heal it? What we see here very clearly is yes, there is. Jesus wants to still be in relationship with his disciples. He doesn't want them to get so caught up in the, the elephant in the room that they couldn't stand with him in that moment that they aren't able to be in relationship with him for the rest of their lives and for eternity. He doesn't want that. And clearly here, Peter isn't allowing the, the, the failure on his part to keep him away from Jesus. He might think that he's going to run to Jesus and Jesus is going to smack him over the head. If Peter is thinking at all about a normal human being, he's surely at least expecting a see, I told you so. But what does he do? He just goes charging towards Jesus because he wants that healing. And then we see as we move on that restoration heals what's actually broken. It's not superficial. It says when they, they finish breakfast, so they've had that fellowship, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's been a lot of ink spilt on these words exchanged between Jesus and Peter. Rightly so, it's a, it's a remarkable exchange. It seems like probably too much gets played into the, the actual wording of it. Some kind of secret code in here is Jesus using a certain form of love here and Peter's using a different form of love and they're crossing paths or something. Is that what's going on here? But as we look at the Gospel of John, while there are indeed in the original Greek two different words being used, they're both used to speak of both the love between God and man and of men of each other. It doesn't seem to be necessarily anything super technical going on here. And there's some variation in what Jesus is commanding Peter to do, but it, again, it, it seems really like we should take it pretty straightforward. The big thing is that Jesus asked him three times. And in doing this, I, I think when we boil it down to something as simple as that, Jesus asks three times, Peter answers three times. If we keep it that simple for a moment, we notice two things about this. First off, well, for one, there aren't any big miracles, right? Jesus doesn't say, okay, we're going to work on this, Peter, and I'm going to show you that you're forgiven by, I'm going to make you float in the air, or I'm going to heal this person over here and say, if this person's healed, then Peter's forgiven. He doesn't do anything like that, right? He doesn't say, I'm going to set fireworks off in the sky without any fireworks actually launching from the ground, and you'll know that you're forgiven. He doesn't do anything like that. He has a conversation. He creates an opportunity for fellowship by making breakfast, and then he spends time actually talking to Peter. He says, let's have a conversation, Peter. And I suspect that Peter isn't surprised at all that they have the conversation they do, that they're going to address what's happened. Although I think Peter's maybe a little bit surprised how it goes because Jesus doesn't spend his time berating Peter. He doesn't spend his time criticizing Peter. 
He asked Peter if he loves him, if, if Peter loves Jesus. It's just a conversation between friends really, really close friends. Peter's in the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They've been together through so much. And now things are so broken. And what does Jesus do? He says, let's just talk. It's not overly confrontational. It's not how we would do it. It's not how I would do it, right? Now, a lot of times if, if something has gone wrong and someone's hurt me, my natural response is not to say anything and just kind of distance myself. Now, Jesus breaks that part by having fellowship with Peter. He's opening up to Peter. But if I actually work up the nerve to say something, I'm usually not as nice as I feel like I'm being in my head. I'm going to say some hard truths now. I'm going to let you know how you've wronged me. And sometimes we need to be blunt. God sends prophets who are blunt. Jesus himself at times is blunt. But here, as he looks to Peter, he knows Peter wants a relationship with him. He wants a relationship with Peter. There's something broken, so what does he do? He does it in, in a way that's not overly confrontational, but it's not superficial. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, we okay? Yeah, we're good still? Everything okay? He doesn't say that. He doesn't just have breakfast with him and then say, okay, well, you know, I've shown that I'm willing to cook you some fish. It was pretty good fish at that. So, or, you know, okay, good. Go about your business. What does Jesus do? He has a conversation with Peter. He talks it over with Peter. He, Peter has denied Jesus three times. He'd been told he was going to deny Jesus three times. So you know three is emblazoned on Peter's mind. He, he knows what he's done. And so what does Jesus do? He asks Peter to affirm that he loves him three times. He doesn't say, Peter, you denied me three times, so I want you to go and confess you love me 3,000 times, and then we'll talk. He goes right for the heart of it. Peter, we both know what you've done. Let's fix this. I want you to tell me what you really think. Because I know that was, isn't who you really are, Peter. I know that's not what you really wanted. You didn't desire that. As Peter hears it the third time, I think he thinks the axe is about to drop. We're told he's grieved when, when Jesus asked him the third time. Because you know Peter's thinking, he, he really is doing exactly what I thought. He's referring to my denial and now he's going to do exactly what he talked about in chapter 15, just a few weeks ago, right before I did this. He said, if anyone does not, this is Jesus, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, if you reject me, I'm going to cast you out. And Peter is probably thinking, okay, so I've said twice already that I love Jesus, Jesus has asked me a third time, and he's going to say, as soon as I answer this, he's going to say, but Peter, you didn't abide in me. Peter, you failed me. Peter, get out. He's just luring me into this trap. You know, sometimes you, you see damage to a building. Maybe it's a, a, a business, their sign gets knocked off the building by a strong wind, and so they go and put up a new sign. 
And that new sign looks a little different. The logo's been updated or whatever. And so you look up and maybe there's stucco on the building. And so there's, they, they, they take little dabs of paint and they cover up the places where the hole for the old sign went, you know, the different holes where the power was coming out and the screws and so on. And they, they take some paint and they kind of sort of match it. They slap that new logo on. Okay, everyone knows we're still open. But there's these big gaping mismatched parts now because there's these places where they just put a little paint on and haven't really fixed anything. They left the damage from the old sign on the building. You drive around town, you'll see sign after sign like this because it's expensive. It, it takes effort to fix it the right way to really cover it all up and make it look nice again. Jesus is taking the effort. He's saying, Peter, I don't just want to slap a new apostle sign on you. I don't want to just say, Peter's ministry is open for business again. I want to repaint the places where all the scrapes and all the cuts are. I want you to actually be restored. Now, sometimes when we do this to each other, when we hurt each other, things are still going to be rough. It's still going to be difficult. Things aren't going to be quite how they should be just yet. But I think of part of what we're seeing here. I mean, Peter didn't suddenly, in that moment, even get everything right. We, we read about the, the older Peter in his letters, and we learn where he has grown. He didn't necessarily have it all straight in this moment still. In fact, we can see that if we look just beyond this whole conversation, Peter's, again, comparing himself to John. Verse 20 if we were to turn there, and we're not going to get into a whole bunch today because that's a whole other story, but, but the simple thing, if you look at this here, is Peter saying, well, what about him? He's back to his old tricks. Peter isn't fixed all the way yet. He's still doing Peter stuff. Not completely fixed, but the thing that we see here is Jesus isn't satisfied to leave him broken. Neither should we be satisfied to leave each other broken. That's what our calling as a church is, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to be repairing each other and not leave each other broken. If we're going to be those who announce that God restores the world, that God is making all things new, then the first step is to actually be those through the power of the Holy Spirit who help make each other new. We can't leave each other broken, leave each other separated from each other, leave each other injured and marred and scarred and be satisfied with that and then go out to the world and say, hey, world, look at the church. You should be a part of it. We have to actually want to heal each other. We see Peter saying these words here, but there's more to it than that. The problem is so often, even when it gets to this point, we stop there and there is an actual change. I've been fascinated by the, the Loop Trolley Project. Has anyone ridden on their loop trolley, the University City loop trolley. Well, that's not really surprising because most people haven't gone on the loop trolley. That's the problem with it. It's kind of a neat idea. They took old street cars and they put a track down the middle of University City all the way to Forest Park and it stops at the History Museum. You can go back and forth from the U-City loop to the History Museum, back and forth. Not a bad idea, except how many people actually need to get from University City from the loop itself, all the way to the History Museum. Maybe they want to get to Forest Park, but how many actually want to get just to the History Museum? And clearly not many, because not many people were have been riding on this trolley. It shut down. The, they ran out of money. And 
And then they ran into a problem where the federal government was going to want to recall the grants they'd given for the trolley if they didn't get it back up and running. So they scrounged up more money and they've reopened the trolley, trying to get it going so that they don't default on all this money. So what do you think they did? Well, they, they started the trolley back up. It's running back and forth again. But guess what? It's still going between the U-City Loop and the History Museum. U-City Loop and the History Museum. And next time you want to go from U-City to the History Museum, you'll love it. But it didn't fix the problem, which is that people want to go further than that. People want to go maybe to the zoo. They want to go to the art museum. They want to go to the Muni. They don't just need to go to the History Museum. It didn't fix the problem. Jesus' restoration fixes the problem. It doesn't just refund it so it can break down again. We refund sometimes things and then it just breaks down again. Take a look at verses 18 and 19 as Jesus talks to Peter. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus said, Peter, You've been shaky at times. You, at times you, you're bold and you're proclaiming exactly what you should be and you're on, on the ministry team 100% and you're doing exactly what you should, want, should do, but so often you're also failing. But I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to take you to where you're supposed to be. And we see Peter is processing as he's talking to Jesus. He, he doesn't respond with the same level of enthusiasm Jesus does. He just says, you, Lord, you know I love you. And that final time when he's asked, he says, Lord, you know everything. And Peter's thinking, if you could see inside of me right now, Jesus, and I know you can, unlike everyone else, you actually can. You know that I love you. I'm, I'm messed up. I am just running between the loop and the history museum, and I know I need to get to the zoo, but I can't get there. But you know I love you. And Jesus says, I'm going to lay the rest of the track. I'm not going to leave you just going uselessly between the loop and the history museum forever. You are going to get to where you're supposed to go. You're going to get all the way to the arch. You're going to keep going. You're going to get to New York City. You're going to go all the way around the world, Peter. It's not going to stop. Now Peter's going to actually do what he pledged to do. We're told here that Jesus said that one day he's going to actually glorify God by serving the Lord until he's martyred for it. Matthew 26, 30 to 34. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fail, fall away because uh, of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter knows that's the background. That, that prediction, yes, he's going to deny Jesus, but also what he said in his bravado. Jesus, I'm the others, you know, you don't know about those other guys, but me, I'm never going to fail you. I will go to the death for you. I'll get all the way to the zoo. And, and Jesus here says to Peter, Peter, you're going to do exactly what you said. 
You are going to go to the death for me. You are going to be restored enough as an apostle. You're actually going to do everything you thought you could do. How's it going to change? That's why we celebrate Pentecost. 1 Peter 4.14. Notice what Peter says later in life. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I believe here Peter is thinking about how he has gone from the man who pledged everything for Jesus but couldn't pull it off to the man who actually does everything for Jesus. How does he do it? The Holy Spirit of the Lord of glory upon him. Now Peter is going to shepherd the sheep, and he did. And his letters are demonstration of that as he gives last instructions before he dies to make sure that they know how to carry on the work in the next generation. He's no longer scattering like sheep struck without a shepherd. Now he's the one as an under-shepherd, as he says in First Peter 5, 2, who restores and is shepherding others. It all starts with restoration. Jesus could have just rejected Peter, but he doesn't. And that challenges us, because we see what happens with Peter. We see what happens when restoration actually happens. How am I going to, to be a healing agent to those around me? How am I going to restore when I've been hurt and when I've hurt. Now, you need all these elements. And that's why I've said, hold on if you've been deeply hurt. Abusive situations that happen, those are real. They're real in the church. And notice here that Peter desires it and Jesus desires it. We can't do what the really unfortunate teaching sometimes in the church says where we can fix things that one side doesn't want to fix. We can't restore what someone refuses to restore. Think about that rolling pin. And I can glue it back together, but it's still going to be, uh, still going to have cracks in it. It's never going to be able to be a full-fledged functional rolling pin again. It's just going to break again if I try. And sometimes we try in our own human ability to force restoration when there isn't desire, when one party doesn't want it. Maybe we've been deeply hurt. I know many of you have been deeply hurt. And the other side doesn't want to fix it. And so you try to superglue it together on your own strength and it's just going to crumble again. But what we need to understand as brothers and sisters in Christ is when by God's power, by his grace, we both both the injured and the one who caused the injury both desire restoration. Something beautiful can happen. We're not then the rolling pin. As the Spirit works in, in both of our hearts, what does God do? He doesn't just glue together a rolling pin. It's much more like a plant that's been pruned. Yes, there may be some broken branches, but what does God do? He clips them off and we grow new, better branches. And when we as the body of Christ say we're not satisfied until we restore each other, we're not satisfied until we're restored, restorers who are agents of the very mercy and grace of God, what happens? The tree of the church grows as the Spirit waters it. It's beautiful. We're forgiven by God. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we are agents of God's restoration. And so may we be those who follow the example of Jesus and seek restoration with those around us. As we hurt each other as a church family and as the broader church in this community and in this world, may we be anxious to restore. And as we do, may we watch as God works powerfully. Let us pray. Father,
this is easier said than done. There are times that, that we're deeply hurt, we're confused, we're broken. We don't even really know how to make sense of how we're hurt. We don't even know how to pull it together. We, we're like Peter there wondering as he's in that boat whether there's any future for him at all. But Lord, would you help us to continue to see the future you have for each of us and the future you have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Would you help us to yearn for restoration together? And by that, would you help us not to be satisfied with a partial gluing back together, but to yearn to see your spirit move powerfully that we would genuinely restore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.